This is Cosmic Coffee Time, the place where we take a look at what's happening somewhere in the universe in about the time it takes to have a coffee. It's cosmology in a cup. I'm Andrew Prestige, and this is another very special episode of Cosmic Coffee Time. We have a great chat with Earl Swift. Earl is a New York Times bestselling author, and his book Chesapeake Requiem was named a best book of 2018 by the Washington Post. Earl's new book is Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. He joined me from the Blue Ridge Mountains near Charlottesville, Virginia. Earl Swift, congratulations on the book and welcome to Cosmic Coffee Time. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. You write across such a broad range of topics. Is this your first space book? It is. It is. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that's the nice part of the job is that uh, when you take on a book project, you become, however briefly, a bit of an expert on the topic. That expertise has a short shelf life usually, but in the case of a, a 50-year-old story, hopefully it'll last a little bit longer. And I've read so many books about spaceflight, Apollo, and the moon landings but I'd never seen a deep dive into the rovers before. They really were incredible vehicles, weren't they? They were. Uh, and, and considering that when NASA finally green-lighted them, uh, there was very little time to, to put them together, uh, to test them, and to actually get them built. It's astounding that they were as successful as they were. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, there were electric cars that weighed less than 80 pounds on the moon. Uh, an astronaut could pick one up, you know, pick one of the rovers up and move it if he had to by hand. And uh, they were powered by a total of one horsepower of electrical motor, you know, a quarter horsepower motor in each wheel. And uh, nonetheless, climbed up the sides of mountains with 800 pounds of astronaut and a, a bunch of moon rocks aboard. And we had to wait until the fourth moon landing to get some proper mobility there. You referred a lot to a series of stories in Collier's news magazine that were published in 1952. They said that surface vehicles, tank-like cars, should be included. And so we saw even 20 years before the rovers that that sort of mobility was important. Yeah, I think, I think that from the start, Werner von Braun recognised that uh, to get the most, the biggest bang for the buck out of uh, what was sure to be a ruinously expensive venture to the moon, you'd have to give the astronauts a way to, to get from point A to point B with pretty, you know, with dispatch. And one thing I hadn't really thought about before was that in the 1950s and 60s when they were being designed, that off-roading wasn't really a thing. Uh, the wheeled vehicles were very good at driving on roads, but not so much off-road like they'd need to on the moon. Did that open up the door for a lot of radical designs for the for the vehicles and for the wheels in particular? You know, it, it you you would think it would, but it's no it's no uh, accident that many of the rover's components, especially those related to its off-road capabilities were developed by a GM lab in California that specialized in contracts for the military. So this lab's primary purpose was to build Jeep-like all-terrain vehicles uh, for various specialized purposes. And, you know, the, 
the, the moon business was kind of a sideline uh, initially. It became more front and center as the years went on through the 1960s. But uh, you could argue, I guess, that the early rover design studies had an effect on, on the chassis of, of some uh, off-road vehicles, military vehicles. But we really haven't seen, seen those applications make their way into the consumer market. I haven't seen anybody driving a, a flexible chassis, you know, off-road vehicle, which is well, too electric bad. cars are, are coming in now, and I oh, I wonder absolutely. whether they were applied in different areas. You you talked about the metalastic wheels that had like curved bladed spokes, right. and it it looks like the spokes would act as a spring within the wheel. And are they the sort of wheels that have been used on on the Mars rovers, Curiosity and Perseverance? you can definitely trace the lineage of the Mars rovers wheels to various different designs that came up in the sixties. Uh, no one, one design has really emerged as, as the parent of the Mars rovers wheels, but, but they've been combined in a pretty ingenious way. They've taken the best elements of several different designs to, to come up with. And there were a lot of different types of vehicles proposed uh, as a lunar rover, were some of the designs too complex because there was a real push to keep it simple and keep it reliable? And there was that saying, the part that doesn't fly doesn't fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's not on the vehicle, it won't break. Uh, you know, I think initially, starting in 1952 with Von Braun's uh, vision of what a moon landing would be like, the, the supposition was always a moon rover would be a pressurized vehicle. It would be a tank-like vehicle that you'd climb into in your spacesuit, take your spacesuit off while you were in it, and and explore in shirt sleeve comfort. And uh, that uh, that was that stayed uh, that stayed the vision for a good ten years at least. It wasn't until nineteen in almost the mid-sixties that von Braun's thinking on that began to come around to something far more simpler simple uh, to, a, to a, a lunar jeep, as he called it. Uh, and, uh, and what really drove that turn was uh, the realization that the moon rovers he and others had initially envisioned would require their own Saturn Vs to reach the moon. They were enormously heavy. And so it was weight more than anything, even more than complexity, that killed those early, those early, uh, those early visions. And there was a really cool proposal from Bendix, I think it was. I really like this one. I want to get your thoughts on it as well. Um, the one where the, the rover could be used by the astronauts while they were there and then driven by remote control after the astronauts had left. Yeah, well, Bendix, GM and Grumman all came up with variations on the same idea. And, you know, that was uh, in 1968. So this is maybe uh, nine months before the first moon landing with Apollo 11 that NASA finally uh, issued a contract for study of a, of a scaled-down, simplified rover with the proviso that it, it had this remote control aspect to it. And eventually what, what did in that idea was, in, in this case, it was complexity, complexity and just time to develop. Uh, you know, uh, Apollo was the end of Apollo was in sight. It was just three years off, and uh, they realized they couldn't turn around a, a remote control rover quickly enough. 
And with no vehicles on the first three moon landings, NASA, it seemed, wanted to get the adventure stage of, um, of the moon landings out of the way and get down to the science. So they put a real high priority on the science. And is that essential to NASA being NASA? Yeah, it, yes, I think certainly now it is. Um, you know, NASA's, uh, NASA's reason for being kind of shifted over time. Uh, initially, it was, you know, we were going to put somebody on the moon first. And that was the whole goal. And Apollo 11 had no pretenses of doing science. It was going to you know, put, put the lunar module on the surface, let the guys get out and walk around for a couple hours, then get the heck out of there and get them back alive. And that was it. And you saw with Apollo 12 and Apollo 14 with astronauts still on foot, you saw a little bit more of an ambitious approach to science, but you know, it had to be conducted with the astronauts on foot. And so it was really limited. And at that stage, uh, as certainly with Apollo 12 anyway, uh, they set the lunar module down on some pretty safe and pretty uninteresting real estate. Apollo 14, that changed a bit. They were in the highlands. But even so, those guys uh, were exhausted by their, their trek to the Cone Crater, which was their prime, prime mission directive, really. And uh, it was only a half mile away. So the, the fact that they were on foot and using so much uh, of their, their stores and their backpacks of, of cooling water and air, uh, doing simple things, really uh, underlined the need to, to come up with something quickly that would, would lower their metabolic rates, basically. I mean, that's, that was one of the rover's big, big jobs, you know, get those metabolic rates down so that air and cooling water would last longer and the astronauts could spend a decent amount of time outside. But Apollo 15 was set to be a big deal. The first mission with the lunar rover with Dave Scott and Jim Irwin. But there were some technical problems, weren't there, that meant that the public didn't get to see much of it. Yeah, well, there, there were minor. Uh, and, the, and the public did get to see them because this was on live television worldwide. Everybody got to see that the rover's front steering didn't work, you know, when they, when they fired it up initially. So it was deeply embarrassing to the guys at GM. Uh, but luckily, it, it sorted itself out. Uh, and, uh, you know, with that minor anomaly aside, it, it performed beyond the wildest dreams of anyone at NASA, I think, which is saying something. And then there was Apollo 16 with John Young and Charlie Duke. And you spoke to, ja- to Charlie while you were writing the book. And I've got a bit of a soft spot for Charlie. I was oh, lucky well, enough I, to... S- as, as do I. He, what, what a <laughs> right. great guy. Uh, yeah, I, was lucky, I was lucky enough to see him speak at an event here in Melbourne a couple of years ago when he was in Australia, and I thought he was the standout, the unexpected standout in David Sington's film, In the Shadow of the Moon. I thought he was really good in that. Uh, and Earl, on Apollo 16, they had the, the Lunar Grand Prix with the Rovers, which was a, a, a film they wanted to shoot to analyse the way the rover moved on the lunar surface. And that video's on, on YouTube now. And we're used to the TV images being grainy video TV images, but that was shot on film. Uh, I think it was 16-millimetre film. Yes. It looks amazing. Well, it's been dressed up a lot too. They've, they've come up with, with you know, clean-up technology that's taken that 16-millimetre circa 1971 film and, and made, or 72, rather, and made it beautiful. I mean, it looks like it was shot yesterday. Uh, and... and, and, and and that filming was necessary because although the rover had a remote-controlled TV on its nose, 
that TV could only operate when the rover was stopped. And the reason was that the astronauts had to precisely aim that big uh, high-gain antenna that looks like an inverted umbrella on the front of the rover, had to aim it precisely at the Earth to get the, the TV signals to transmit properly. And bouncing around in the lunar surface, there was just no way to keep it aimed. So they, they would stop at a science stop. The commander would get out, sight the, the high-gain antenna with, a, with an eyepiece that was built into it. So we've got Earth in the middle. And then they'd start the TV camera. Well, the problem was the people who built the rover and everyone at NASA never got to see the rover actually moving. So, uh, so there was a great demand for this, just uh, a short film of the rover being put through its paces on rough ground. And John Young drove it. Uh, uh, it it's, it's not a long, long movie. You know, it's uh, probably about a minute in total. Uh, he makes two, two circuits in the rover, bouncing all over the place. So I say in the book that uh, it bounces so much that the frame almost looks like it's made of rubber. It just, uh, it, it, it's, uh, but he was completely in control the whole time. And, uh, and the people at NASA and at General Motors got a lot out of it. Earl Swift is talking with us about the lunar rovers and his new book, Across the Airless Wilds. And you feature Dr. Mark Robinson from Arizona State University who worked on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And that orbiter produces images that clearly show the rover tracks that are still on the moon today. Uh, he says that's inspiring. Uh, we used to go to the moon, he says. And it is inspiring, absolutely. But is it a little bit sad as well that it's past tense? Well, I think, I think you could argue the book ends on that wistful note really uh you know the fact is that we've got 50 year old tire tracks crisscrossing the lunar surface but they're 50 years old and and that's uh yeah it it, it brings me some melancholy i mean those missions unfolded they're some of my earliest childhood recollections and uh the idea that we haven't been back since i was little is uh is a bit depressing <laughs> And why haven't we been back to the moon? I mean, 50 years since the rovers, all the testing that was done right up to Apollo 16. And Werner von Braun, you said in your book that he predicted that there'd be vehicles with pressurised cabins on the moon capable of driving 1,000 miles by 1990. We've got Artemis in the planning stage at the moment. But why has there been such a long absence when the Apollo rovers were more of a time challenge than a technical challenge. They were. Well, well, in terms of unmanned rovers, I don't have a good explanation. I mean, it seems that we could have been in that business all along. Uh, in terms of manned rovers, of course, it, the grotesque expense involved is, was the big thing. And, and there was a lot of pushback aimed at NASA over the idea that uh, the agency was spending billions of dollars on rockets that could only be used once. That disposability was by the, the end of the program, seen as a real liability. And, uh, you know, the space shuttle offered a solution to that and the most pressing needs of, of the space program as they were, as they were conceived in 19, you know, 1970 or so. Uh, and uh, yeah, lunar, lunar missions lost out. And uh, it's a shame, but, uh, and I don't think you'll run into any Apollo astronaut who doesn't uh, lament that. But uh, it's interesting when when Werner von Braun did make that 
prediction that we'd be, you know, we'd see astronauts driving around in pressurized rovers by 1990. He had returned to the 1952 image he had of the rover again. He was back to that idea of a huge tank-like transporter, you know, making long-distance trips with astronauts sitting comfortably in air-conditioned, uh, air-conditioned cabins. There was a tremendous cost involved, and just on cost, there's a there's a car racing category here in Australia called supercars. It's a little bit along the lines of NASCAR. And I heard once that running one of those cars costs a thousand dollars a lap. And to me, that seems like a lot of money. But in your book, you said that the Lunar Rover cost four million dollars a mile. Is that too much? Was it good value? Well, and bear in mind that's you know those are 1971 dollars. <laughs> it's uh, I take that back. Six hundred and eighty thousand dollars per mile in nineteen seventy-one dollars and forty-one. Well, it wasn't going to be cheap, you know. <laughs> it's uh, just getting the the rover there uh, was, of course, the the biggest expense. It has nothing to do with how much it actually cost to drive the thing. Um, was it too much? Uh, you know, you compare the rover's expense to every other element of the Apollo program, and it was a bargain, a complete bargain. It was wildly expensive. I mean, we spent essentially $40 million, uh, you know, 1969 dollars on three, three electric cars. And, uh, you know, 13, 13 million a piece is, uh, is dear by anybody's measure, I think. But did they make the mission? They yeah, I think that if you if you do a comparison, mission to mission of what was achieved before the rovers and then with them, there's no comparison. With, you know, they they completely reimagined what was possible on the lunar surface. Earl Swift is the author of Across the Airless Wilds, and just one final question for you, Earl. It must have been a great experience speaking with Charlie and Dave Scott and all the other people who were involved with the project while you were writing the book. And we're all fortunate that you can still do that and ask them new questions. A lot of them are entering their 90s now, so we're really appreciative of that. But was there a personal highlight for you while you were writing the book? I think that I enjoyed what came as the biggest surprise to me and the day that I think I enjoyed most in the roughly two years that I spent on it, was going to Flagstaff, Arizona, and walking around the, uh, the Cinder Lake crater fields, which are, it's a lunar surface analog, a fake moon surface that was blown into the desert floor to train Apollo 11 and later missions, and, and just kind of orienteering their way across the surface. And they the, the people at the U.S. Geological Survey took an aerial photo of a piece of the Sea of Tranquility and perfectly duplicated it in a in a a cinder a cinder field in the shadow of a volcano north of Flagstaff up in the mountains of, uh, of northern Arizona, and it is it is eerie to to walk around that crater field today. Not many people do it uh, in crater field number one is pretty well protected. And to be able to to see what they saw, you know, in in pretty realistic terms, and in, in in a part of the southwestern desert that's pretty unearthly to begin with, 
uh, is was really a treat. And I had with me uh, the guy who ran the astrogeology program at the USGS as my guide, uh, Laszlo Keste. And he was somebody whose earliest childhood memory was seeing the rovers on TV. And uh, so it was, it was a real treat. Uh, but also meeting, meeting the engineers. I mean, these are guys who, who never got the attention they deserved uh, at, at both NASA and at General Motors, uh, who, uh, who were geniuses. And, and engineering gets a bad rap, I think, is a pretty dismal pursuit. But the best engineers are enormously creative, and, and these guys demonstrated that. What a great note to end on. Our guest today was Earl Swift, author of Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover, and The Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. We'll have some links in the show notes to make sure everyone can find it. Earl, all the best with the new book. It's been great talking with you. And thanks for joining us on Cosmic Coffee Time. Andrew, what a treat. Thank you. Across the Airless Wilds is published through HarperCollins, and Earl's website is earlswift.com. Check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for joining me. I'm Andrew Prestige, and I'll see you again soon for another Cosmic Coffee Time.